Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform. I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to The World is Wrong Podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about the island. The island? <laughs> Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films the world is wrong about. I am one of your hosts, and my name is Andras Jones. And I'm one of the hosts, and my name is Brian Connolly. And today, as you just heard, we are looking at Michael Bay's The Island. The Island and the Bay. Uh, <laughs> Brian, you chose this film. Defend yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I got your back. Already? already? <laughs> Not against uh, me, but against the so, onslaught of thoughts that just rushed out of our audience. It would have um, made well, Obi-Wan you know, Kenobi it's, duck. It's, uh... I guess, you know, ask me why the world's wrong about it. Let's just start there. We're really good. We're going to start with that? Wow. Let's just go, you know, and then we'll go from there. Okay, you know what? Right, you're right. Let's get it out of the way. Okay, uh, Brian, tell us how is the world wrong about the island? Well, it's interesting because I, I picked this movie because I remember thinking it was great and I love Michael Bay. And then I watched it this week and I was like, oh, I don't really like that movie. But... There is a reason why I picked it. It is like, I wanted to, so The World is Wrong, part one, about Michael Bay. He is dismissed as shit. He is dismissed as big box office Hollywood crap. Uh, He is considered oftentimes the poster child for big bloated Hollywood excess garbage movies, brainless garbage movies. I disagree completely with that statement. Um, I'm a huge fan of Michael Bay's, have always been. I've done many a thesis uh, on him. I've, I've made three movies now about Michael Bay. I'm just working through things in my in my mind. I met other filmmakers in the country who've also made films about Michael Bay. So there's a fascination about it. I have a friend who's trying to write a book about Michael Bay. It's like, there's something about him that's more, there's definitely something more interesting than say, I won't name names, but other Hollywood directors who even say a film by in their name, and we don't care about their movies. We don't even, you know, they, there is no style. But Michael Bay does have a style, and he does have a unique point of view that is definitely him. And I think this movie I picked also because it's the only movie of his that he doesn't really like. I seem, seem to recall reading an interview with him where he was very dismissive of it, and the reason was because the movie was a huge, huge box office bomb. It's considered a huge Hollywood bomb. It cost a lot of money. In America, it did not make its money back. Worldwide, it made about $15 million profit, which is not a lot in, you know, in terms of Hollywood stuff. So it's considered a failure. I don't think this movie's terrible. I think it's totally worth watching. Is it great? No. Is it a masterpiece? No. 
there are there parts of this movie that I consider masterful and amazing? Yes, definitely, and we will get into that. Um, and you know, yeah, it is a ripoff of many other movies. It's basically Victoria's Secret, Logan's Run, or you know, like whatever you want to say it is. Uh, it's you know, it's very similar to many other movies. In fact, there was a lawsuit because of that uh, for this movie. The movie, I think it was Clonus. The people who made that movie in the 70s sued this movie, and DreamWorks tried to dismiss it, and then the judge was like, no, actually, I think there was something to this, and the lawsuit went a little further along before it didn't work out. But on the surface, it, all these are pro yes, these are some problems here, but is this movie worth watching? Yes, it is. And it's time for people to go to the island. I hey, Andros, congratulations. You're going to the island! Wow, you really... this. This one, you really, you really suckered me. You know, when you tell me that there's a movie that the world is wrong about, I take it really seriously. I'm like, I'm going to, especially, especially if I don't like it the first time I watch it. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to watch this until I appreciate it. Uh, not, I guess not always, but in this case, I've watched this. I've given myself the Ludovico treatment with this film and now I find out you don't even like it. <laughs> I wanted to do a Michael Bay movie. I've been wanting to do a Michael Bay movie all season, but I didn't want to do like he's. There's a lot of his movies that Michael Bay fans or film fans like, so I can't really do those. And the movies that are his best movies, critics actually liked, like Pain and Game. And I guess the Transformers movie would be the other option, but there's five of those, and they're each three hours long, and I didn't want to put you through that. Maybe season three. We'll do we'll do that. So I thought this was like the safest sort of like out of his filmography, this is the one that I feel is talked about the least and is the most dismissed. And so that's why I feel like it is not where close to my favorite Michael Bay movie, but I feel it's worth a conversation, as all movies are on the show, because I think what this episode proves is like I don't think we're just we should think of movies in terms of good or bad but fascinating and what's within it that is um you know just what what is this what's in this movie that is something that you'd want to watch like or what is the the the, the point of it that like that maybe we didn't see or that you missed i don't know well i'll tell like you there's <laughs> there's a lot more to this movie than you'd think there's a lot of details in here can't wait to get into but first how about we uh we're just going to play a clip from it and then we'll come back and you can tell us as much of the, of the story of this movie as you want to tell us or whatever your, your thesis is on it. Why don't you tell me about your dream? Well, it's the same dream every time. I'm on a boat headed to the island. A boat? What kind of boat? A nice boat. Draw it for me, would you? So... You're heading toward the island. What happens then? I drown. Really? Why do you think that is? I don't know. You tell me. Maybe you're afraid of winning. Why would I be afraid of winning? You tell me. What's troubling you, Lincoln? Well, it's... It's just... All right. Tuesday night is tofu night. And I'm asking myself, 
Who decided that everyone here likes tofu in the first place? And what is tofu anyway? And why can't I have bacon? I line up every morning, and I'm not allowed any bacon for my breakfast. And uh, tell me, let's talk about all the white. Why is everyone wearing white all the time? It's impossible to keep clean. I'm walking around, I, get, I always get the gray stripe. I never get any color, and I hand it in to be cleaned, and, and someone cleans it and folds it neatly back in my drawer, but who? Who is that person? I don't know. I just, I want to know answers, and I, and, I, and I wish that there was more. More? Yeah, more than just waiting to go to the island. That was a clip of Ewan McGregor's character, uh, Lincoln Six Echo, complaining that he wants to eat bacon and they won't let him eat bacon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, just to let everyone know, there there's no way to talk about this movie without spoiling the hell out of it. So, there's a lot of twists and turns in here. Some may be obvious to you when you watch it. But uh, watch the movie first before you go any further because we're going to have to go through the twists and turns of this movie to be able to talk about it. Fair enough? Fair enough. All right, so so here's the plot. I'll do the simple version of it. So, we're in the future. Everyone's wearing similar-esque jumpsuits. Everyone is very beautiful. We follow Lincoln Six Echo, played by Ewan McGregor, around this sort of giant, beautiful, clean compound. And this is the, the the last of society since this big sort of outbreak, disease, turmoil that wiped the world away and everyone has to hide away inside, uh, you know, basically this lifetime of quarantine. But if you're good, if you pass the test, if you win this lottery, you get to go to the island, which is sort of like advertised as this clean, beautiful uh, place in the sun. And every week they announce a winner, everyone applauds, and the winner leaves. While uh, Lincoln Six Echo exists, he occasionally has to visit a doctor, played by the great Sean Bean, who kind of does a little bit of a therapy with him, kind of asks him questions of like, do you, like, like, oh, you had a dream about a boat, why don't you draw me the boat? You know, just a lot of like Rorschach testy type stuff, and also just a lot of brain picking. He also... Uh, has a relationship with Jordan 2 Delta, played by Scar jo, Scarlett Johansson. And, but they can't be too good of a friends because uh, intermingling between the sexes is strictly prohibited. So they can talk, but once they get a little too close, someone shows up and says, okay, back it up, you two. Sort of like a chaperone at a middle school dance. Um, he also is friends with James, played by Steve Buscemi, who sort of is... The grunt behind the scenes kind of working in the sort of like what makes the things work in this compound. Like what makes the water work or the food work or whatever. He's like in the more blue collar, dirtier, mucky uh, area. And he kind of gives uh, Lincoln Six Echo little, you know, things about how it used to be. And like, oh, oh I found a, here's a butterfly or whatever out in the in the contaminated world. Um there's also a lot of weird work that people have. His job, Ewan McGregor's job, is to like inject colors into a tube that they don't know where it comes from and they don't know where it goes. It's all very classic. It feels like that kind of classic 70s sci-fi. It's very Logan's Run. It's very much like that kind of like 
throwback to that sort of movie. But because it's a DreamWorks movie and because it's Michael Bay, it leads to all sorts of crazy big action scenes with things flying all over the place as he does so well. Uh, and there's lots, a lot more twists and turns as to who these people are, what they're actually doing, how far in the future are they actually actually living, who can you trust, who can you not trust. It kind of gets a little bit into that uh, 70s paranoia film in a way as well. Mixed all in that great kind of Bruckheimer-esque blow-everything-up sort of glossy eye candy. But so this was it, his it, first film without Bruckheimer, right? Yeah, this was his first DreamWorks movie. And I think the reason why it maybe isn't as good as his other stuff is he was playing nice, I think, for Spielberg so he can then do the tra- be allowed to do the Transformers movie. Or, they, or this feels like a test drive for the Transformers movie. And we can talk about that a little later. I have some ideas and thoughts about that. Um, but yeah, that's the island. There's definitely more to it. We'll get into it, I'm sure. But that's the gist of it. Yeah, yeah. This it's this film is one heck of a milkshake. That's that's <laughs> this is it, you. They just put every they put so many movies into this one movie, and then just like it's so great. I uh, I mean, it's not great, but it is. Uh, well, it's like a milkshake, right? I mean, you like it while you're drinking it. I mean, this is guy. I I I just I just made a just. Every time I thought of another film while I was watching this, I wrote it down. So let's hear hear some of these movies. The Born Identity, Vanilla Mm. Sky, Minority Report, Logan's Run, The Matrix, Rosemary's Baby, Clockwork Orange, Tron, Capricorn One, Escape to Witch Mountain, Star Wars (laughs) and The Green Mile. You forgot Baby's Day Out. Uh, I don't. I, I, <laughs> I never saw Baby's Day Out. It's about a baby who goes out in the world and is climbing on buildings, and Joe Montana is trying to kill him, and it's just like a little two-year-old. Oh, you know, is that? I don't. Yeah, maybe I gave too much away, but this <laughs> okay. movie kind of turns into Baby's Day Out. Is all I'm saying. Okay. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. There's other. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. That's my. You know, someone hands me a milkshake, I take a sip, and I'm like, hmm, hints of Capricorn One. <laughs> then you're like, don't oh, many... you don't even know how many ingredients are in our milkshake. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I, yeah, I don't know. Like, so this was, it's, so you've seen some Michael Bay movies. You're not down the road of obsession that I am. I mean, there's not that many of them, so, I realize, uh, now that I've, I'm looking at them. I mean, the, the, they've all been huge, right? Bad Boys, and, The Rock, Armageddon, yeah. Pearl Harbor, Bad Boys to the Island. That's where we are right now. And then, and then, he, there's, then it's Transformers, Pain and Gain, and that's kind of it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's... I don't know, this is like right in the middle. This movie's right in the middle for him. And like I said, this feels like... Him playing nice, it feels like it kind of reminds me of when the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie came out, and you're like, "This is good." I mean, that Spider-Man movie is way better than this, but like, you're like, "Oh, that's good." And then Spider-Man Two came out, and you're like, "Oh, this is a Sam Raimi movie." He was just kind of playing it safe before he can like really unleash. And I don't know if that was intentional on Michael Bay's half, or he learned a lesson from this because so much of this movie does not feel like a Michael Bay movie to me. 
And it really is like the the reason why I do like this movie and do watch it often, even though it's not perfect, is that 80 minute mark, that crazy freeway action scene with like those axles or whatever that is rolling off the back of the truck, just breaking like it looks like a hundred million dollars spent on just 10 minutes. And that scene feels like that's Michael Bay, like really given like that's a Michael Bay movie. And I think he maybe learned from this. To like, don't hold back on that. And then when you get into the Transformers movies and everything after this, his movies are just like, you know, masterpieces of maximalism that this movie doesn't quite get into. But like, he really, have you ever seen any of the Transformers movies? I have not. I, like, I have not. It's like, maybe the sense I didn't, of, uh, like, I fell asleep. I don't know. They're great in their own special way. Like his, his the way he does action, it's it's basically that ten minutes in this movie, but for three hours of like you have no sense of space. Like it's color sound. It really is truly like I feel tipping into like experimental film. It's like as close as a two hundred million dollar movie will ever get to like a Stan Brackage movie. So, anyways, okay. well. but let's talk about the island. Um, so it's. It has problems, but... Well, hold on a second. Let me ask you a couple of questions here. Okay. Do you mind? (laughs) Sure. Okay. Forget your most recent viewing. When you chose this, what were your, you know, what were your thoughts and feelings about this film? What was it about this film? Was it really just that it was the, the least, it's probably the, the Michael Bay film that people have seen the least, right? I would imagine so, yeah. And I just, I don't know, I remember thinking, like, that was kind of a crazy movie. I remember when I saw it in a theater, thinking, like, that was really wild and crazy. And it just sort of, like, moved at a breakneck speed. And like you said, felt like a milkshake. It just was just like, oh, it's like referencing all these crazy movies within this warning about uh, the evils of cloning, basically. And (laughs) so I... I was just excited to watch that again. I totally forgot when I picked it that it had to do with like kind of people in quarantine and there was like a thing going outside. Like I just didn't even make the connections of the reality that we are in when I picked this movie. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely, this this is a very paranoid, a film that's very paranoid about medicine and needles and authority. Yeah. And, And, uh, And, you know, don't, yeah, definitely, uh, Not my intention as to why I picked it, because I'm not paranoid about those things. Uh, but I, it just subconsciously maybe, or maybe I just wanted to watch a Michael Bay movie, or maybe I thought it's time to watch Scarlett Johansson run around for two and a half hours. Okay, well then, yeah. okay, let's start so, with that. Let's, let's start with that because so this is for. You know, it's marketed as Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson in the island more than even as a Michael Bay film. It's also a Michael yeah. Bay film, but it's a, it's a, it's a both an exciting and a boring time in the careers of Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson in that they have both at this point achieved full bore movie stardom and yeah. they're starring in big movies and they have just, They've gone from being exciting to being that sort of like cruise control, like (laughs) dependable, but boring at being amazing. Like, I know you're amazing, but we've just seen you be amazing so many times. 
But this film is still very much amazed, particularly with Scarlett Johansson, but I feel like with both of them. And does some great movie star service. And at the points when it is just sort of being its most pure cinematic for me is really these just odd, almost like TV commercial, like high budget TV commercial moments <laughs> of very personal focuses on their faces and in their, their, their bodies in motion in the midst of these big, you know, uh, action scenes. But yeah. <laughs> it just, it'll take moments to just, you know, just ogle like there and not in a, in, in a actually, and I think in a great way, not ogling in like uh, a gross way, but just like, Oh, the, the panic in her eyes at this moment. Let's really go in on that. And, or the, you know, just the confusion in his face. Let's, you know, let's take a moment. And everything's moving so fast, but those moments kind of explode. Uh, yeah. That was one of the things, actually, other than the milkshake factor, which just sort of was like, when I surrendered to it, I was like, oh, this is a fun game. How many movies can I find in this movie? It's, there are, it's almost like, you know, the XTC record, Dukes of Stratosphere? When they, I'm not so familiar with this. The, the band XTC did, uh, basically did a record as an alternative band, and they made their versions of like '60s psychedelia, and <laughs> and you can just listen to it and be like, oh, okay, there's that, there's that Beach Boys bass line, and there's that, uh, there's that, oh, that's the backwards guitar, and that they from that outtake of that. Beatles track or whatever it's <laughs> it's once you realize what's going on in a project like project like that if it's speaking to you if you can speak the language of it it can become a very fun thing um I think I like XTC more than I like Michael Bay but <laughs> you could probably level similar criticisms about them in on some level as being so into form that they might have they might seem soulless. You know, Steely yeah. Dan is another thing that like you might put Love in there. Steely Dan. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean it's it's music for people to... who who make music. And the yeah. and, and what's weird, I maybe and maybe this is a point about Michael Bay, is that this is a film that is trying to be a big successful movie, but it's doing this it's playing it, it's succeeding at this other game of making this very nerdy little uh, not art film, but like mashup, like a nerdy little mashup for for <laughs> for people who like paranoid thrillers. It's like if you you want some Logan Logan's Run, oh here comes some Logan's Run for you. I I like to think that he watched THX one one three eight and was like not sexy enough. <laughs> That's what. I, <laughs> yeah, I like the jumpsuits. I like them like running around this compound, but they, they got to be hot. Everyone's gonna be hot. <laughs> yeah, there's there's it's some. So, it, it, so so where so the, like clearly this is just a few years after, or really soon after Ewan McGregor was in all those those second wave of Star Wars movies. Yeah, so this is right after like, Obi Wan Kenobi. He's like, you are now yeah. a big star, and that didn't really last. Thankfully, he went on to actually going back to being an actor in real movies again. But so remind me, where is this with ScarJo? Because this is pre. Marvel Universe, where she really blows up for the world. Yeah. So she's still, like, doing indie stuff to this point? Like, is this, like, a few years after Ghost World, Man Who Wasn't There? And then, like, what? where is this in her 
Like, did, what was the big movie she did before this? Or is this her first big... Like, you're now not in indie movies. You're now in big movies. Uh... Well, th- actually, so this is right when she started working with Woody Allen on oh, okay. Match Point. And that's kind of, I feel like that was a turning point artistically. Like there was, a, it was definitely make, saying I am now taking, and even like Match Point was both a turning point for her and for Woody Allen as a filmmaker, I think. And yeah. And she did like three movies with him, right? Does that seem right? I think she there's like time where it seemed like that was what was happening was they were just constantly making movies together. It was like Scoop, yes, yeah, Match Point. There was Scoop. Um, uh, oh yeah, the Vicky Christina Barcelona. Barcelona. Yeah, yeah. Which, uh, I've never seen any of those movies. Oh yeah. <laughs> are they are they good? Because those don't look very funny. They are to me. <laughs> so oh no, Scoop is is Scoop is funny, and Vicky Cristina Barcelona is really really good. Okay, and Match Point is well. That's what I'm saying. Crimes Match... and misdemeanors without the comedy, right? Well, m- yeah, Match Point is? is like is very much just like a serious, dangerous film. You could look at it in the same way that you look at DiCaprio starting to work with Scorsese. Yeah, or he's still doing some big stuff. Yeah, um, or the turn we talked about with Nicole Kidman after Tom Cruise, where yeah. she just starts to take like you. There's a point in certain movie stars' careers, the good ones, where you just notice that they go from being successful to knowing how to. Like, they're just taking charge of their career. And a lot of times, I mean, if they're lucky, they get to collaborate with a great director. And so, yeah, so that's where... And this is basically... This feels like it's part of the other world. Like, the island feels like what she's getting away from to start making <laughs> real films with a real director. And yeah. and so, yeah, and I, I guess that's... Uh, it's. You could look at that glass half empty as like, oh, she's just getting, <laughs> she's finishing out this. But you could also look at it as finishing out uh, a, that phase of her career with a certain amount of bravura. Uh, there's, mm-hmm. you know, this is, she's great in this. She gets to do a I mean, lot of different things. And yeah, I feel like she's, yeah. well, and I she's feel like un- she's strong. And she's undeniably a huge movie star. Like this is the first kind of big, huge movie I think she ever did. And you can watch it and be like, well, of course. Like, of course she's going to be in more movies that make a billion dollars around the world. She has that superstar quality, you know, that is rare. Um, It's not just because she's pretty, but there is something about her that is magnetic, that is interesting, you know, that is compelling. And um, Ewan McGregor, I think in the same way, not he's not as much of a big star, I feel, even though he's in Star Wars movies at the time. He definitely... I think he feels a little more out of place here than her, for sure. But he is also so likable. Like he just is like as a leading man. Yeah. You really like you really like him. And even though his haircut in this movie is terrible. Oh, come on. Uh, like that 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 is a terrible haircut. What are you talking about? That is some terrible to the like he is the king of bad haircuts. Like he's got so many uh, bad haircuts you know in so what? many movies. Uh, and 
that spiky 90s. That's basically what I, that's my haircut from Nightmare on Elm Street 4, you bastard. But that's okay, because that was the 80s. This is 2005, and supposedly he can't let it go. I understand. He loves Rick from Nightmare 4. And his. (laughs) I take it back. It's a beautiful haircut. Amazing. It's okay. It's fine. But then I, his American accent sounds like when Dave Chappelle does a white guy impersonation. Don't don't you see that? Like it's a I, terrible I, American I, accent. I don't I don't find any. I take no. I find no fault with it. Find. <laughs> he just kind of talks like this. Like oh, I want bacon. Ah, oh, what am I? And it's like this is not. This is doesn't sound good. Like, and then when he and then. Spoiler alert: When the second Ewan McGregor performance shows up and he's speaking in his natural voice. You're like, okay, this is what he should have been doing in the first place. Makes sense for the plot, but, you know, I just wish he didn't have an American accent because it's just not good. When British pe- when people from the UK go American, they should go Southern because it's more, it works better for their accent to turn into a Southern accent. Here he goes more into the sort of Midwest, like, you know... Yeah, this is him from Ohio accent. It doesn't work. It just I just want to go on record saying that I like I I believe that you hear what you say you're hearing, but <laughs> I do not hear it. I okay. I think he's I, I it was of all the things in this film, that was not one of the things that took me out of it. <laughs> um and then let's talk about some of the second tier people real well, quick. Well, am I, I, I correcting you? Because you, you brought up the Michael Bay thing, that this is something of a reunion, a rock reunion. Several of the actors, right, from The Rock are returning. So who's from The Rock in this? Tell me. Well, Buscemi. Uh, sorry, not, uh, wait. Armageddon. Armageddon. <laughs> See, I don't know my, uh, this is, I'm, I, I read up on this and they were saying that there was a, that, that Buscemi and... Uh, Michael Clark Duncan, I believe. Michael is in Clark Armageddon. Duncan and Shawnee Smith are all in Armageddon. Yeah, uh, it's you know it's a little bit of a family reunion, <laughs> and Steve Buscemi is like a good old friend. Whenever he's in anything, no matter what the movie is, I get so happy to see him. It's sad because you know he's gonna die in any. Usually the movies he's in, he's like you're gonna die because it's Steve Buscemi. Oh boy, for a second there, I was like, so, why are you? Like, why are you saying Steve Buscemi's going to die? There's a movie. Okay. This is like, there's a long line of movies from the 90s and aughts where Steve Buscemi shows up and then he dies. Is this one of those movies? Well, you're going to have to watch this movie and find out. And yeah, then it's like Lucy the with same the football with, people. This. And I think they, Sean Bean is problematic in a way in the same way that David Morse is in movies because you know when they show up in a movie... They're going to be the bad guy. That's just what happens when either a David Morse or Sean Bean shows up. You know he's going to be the guy who seems good, and then he's not. Or, again with Sean Bean, or is he going to die? Because that's the Sean Bean thing, is you're either going to die, or you're going to be the bad guy, or you're going to be the bad guy, and you're going to die. And uh, there was a long time where that was all Sean Bean gave us. He's very good, but it is sort of like you're kind of showing your cards a bit by having it be Sean Bean. Whereas if it was Tom Hanks, right, you would you would not expect him to be bad or Harrison Ford. So I think maybe the casting, it would have been better to cast not Sean Bean. Though I can't complain because I love Sean Bean. Well, I just want to just jump in here for a second. I There's a few things where David Morris shows up and he's great and he's he's a good guy. 
Like, didn't what? T- what are the ones where he's a good guy? Well, he's a good guy in Indian Runner. Okay, yeah. And he's a good guy in... He turns out to be a good guy in the David Simon... Treme. Oh, yeah, he starts out where you don't trust... He's the cop, right? Yeah, yeah. they, they so use... So first that- you're like... And then they kind of play with that. Yeah. Yeah. He's... I get what you're saying. Uh, but I just wanted but to you... say that, they, like, if there are people whose brains are exploding, it's like, wait a second. What about saying Elsewhere? He was a really good guy in saying Elsewhere, and that's what everyone got to know him as. <laughs> I mean, yeah, just because but... he's played a crooked cop in a few movies that were really well, good. You know, there's a lot of movies where he played, like, the, I can't, you know, like, 12 Monkeys and uh, Dancer in the Dark. Okay, but and, you know, there's a lot people of things are going to get confused. Like, <laughs> David Morris is not in this film. Sean Bean is in this I film. Know. But Sean, so Sean Bean, there were so many movies in the 90s and aughts where he was like, I'm your friend. No, I'm not. <laughs> like the Lord of the Rings movies and Ronin. And I'm just, uh, just spoiling it, all these you know, movies like, for people. Spo- <laughs> <laughs> these are, you can't spoil a movie that's 20, over 20 years old. Uh, Norman Bates is his mother. Uh, <laughs> who killed Laura Palmer? Okay, uh, but <laughs> you can't. It's you, there's a there's a five year grace period. After oh, five God, years, then okay. it's okay. Anyways, Sean Bean, you know right away there's something up with him. Okay, can we talk a little yeah. bit about th- this? Because I have some I have some ideas about Sean Bean. Yeah, tell me. So first of all, whenever there's a a prominent piece of art that's featured in a character's world, usually yeah. a villain. I got to check it out. So he's got this very prominent Picasso hanging yeah. in his office and it is uh, femme assise or seated woman from 1962. And having watched this film now, you know, probably more time than any more times than anyone who's in it has actually watched it. <laughs> Uh, I also noticed that on Sean Bean's desk, he has this sort of weird sort of screensaver that's floating on his desk when he's talking to Ewan McGregor. But then when they go in on it, it shows butts and like it's <laughs> oh, very like subliminally erotic at um, at exactly 1423 in this movie. It's just like he looks down at uh, at Ewan McGregor's drawing of this boat uh, the speedboat that he has a dream about and it's surrounded by like just these sort of i don't know uh erotic is the wrong word but, but sort of like yeah like pencil erotic erotic drawings uh so huh. there's like and there's a lot of subliminal <laughs> stuff in this film we'll get into more of it but i was also thinking about how Sean Bean in this film feels like like Michael Bay or like what we think of Michael Bay. And I was wondering, as someone who watches his has watched his movies more closely than I have, do you have any sense of like this is the point in a, an artist's career where they feel like they want to maybe start flexing and expressing a little bit of themselves? Like maybe he's playing safe in the sense of not making a pure Michael Bay movie, but also making something that's also in some ways more personal. Did you get any sense of that? No, not from this movie. I get that from Transformers movies. Okay. But not, I, didn't, I don't get that from the island, other than that 
you know, like he is in a way like the doctor in that he is a perfectionist who wants the world full of beautiful people. <laughs> yeah, and he's controlling <laughs> you know, like, them. And controlling them and kind of, you know, yeah. And like, like, could Sean Bean be a filmmaker also, you know, dwelling on ScarJo's face during a car accident? I think so. Yeah. Like, there's, uh, <laughs> there's obsessed about with that. the physicality of people. In a way, yeah, yeah, a li- yeah. sort of like like Ed Harris's character in the Truman Show. Again, this is like the, all, this is part of the milkshake. Um, <laughs> he also throws into the milkshake. I don't know if you, I'm sure you didn't pick up on this, but but again, because I've watched this film so many times now, uh, I I zoomed in on Steve Buscemi's uh, ID, and it was the I, it clicked. Is that oh his name's James McCord. And James McCord was one of the Watergate burglars. He was a, oh. a literal plumber. I mean, not he was a figurative plumber. And when you were describing Steve Buscemi, it's basically that's what his his role is. So, again, there's Interesting. A, just a, add some more 70s paranoia to this film by naming Buscemi's character after, uh, yeah, after one of the Watergate burglars. CIA. Huh. Operative. Interesting. Interesting. James McCord. Although I think uh, the burglar was James, the Watergate burglar was James McCord Jr. So Steve Buscemi <laughs> is playing the father of. <laughs> in the future, the, <laughs> playing the father of. There's a know? whole other story <laughs> in which his character. Yeah, I'd like to see the, the, the 12 Monkeys version of this film that just focuses on Steve Buscemi. And his relationship with his son from the past, who was one of the Watergate burglars. <laughs> okay, sorry. Well, you know, I guess that's where I got. I start by talking about uh, Picasso. And then uh, the next thing I know, I have found the one conspiratorial strand in this film. And now I'm trying to unravel it. Um classic so so <laughs> there are some really fun lines like there's the, i like so in that point when he's had when ewan mcgregor's having his meeting with sean bean and sean bean says i want to run some tests and he's like what kind of tests nice tests <laughs> <laughs> and they are not nice yeah. tests. and then they put then they basically this is where the matrix thing is then they put some sensors in him and get into him in a really Eyeball, looking painful yeah. way and he's like <laughs> yeah. i thought you said these were nice tests <laughs> and i was reading that basically they caught they he directed all of the the clones to act like children and it was yeah. something that i kind of picked up on the first time and then became very obvious once I read that note. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, you could see how that was charming to play and a good, probably just a good catch all note to give it this odd feeling because you're most of that's happening before the turn happens and you realize what's going on. So then Mm -hmm. it just seems sort of like odd and alien. Like, why are these people Mm -hmm. acting weird? Why does the movie start off with Ewan McGregor, our hero, cutting in line for the elevator in front of this big, tall black man and sort of giving him like this weird, cocky grin, which is just like at the beginning of a movie, I feel like everything is kind of important. What you have in the first three minutes of your movie you're telling people something. And that was such a weird... Can you explain that to me? Not that you could, but... 
Is he because it's sort of like it sets him up as like he's going to be some sort of Tom Cruise cocky character. But instead, he's this he's really much more like Chauncey Gardner or brother from another planet. <laughs> I because that's them rushing to go to breakfast. And also because they're all excited about who's going to win the lottery. Right. Right. Yeah. But I don't I don't. This image I don't even remember. Like you're you're telling me it, and I, I mean, just they, watched this. They actually have the dialogue. This. Like he says, what when he says, "Oh, you cut," and he says, "I know." And then he gets in, <laughs> and and then there's no room. He's like, "No room," and then gives him a look. Like I don't know. It's it doesn't. It's not a choice anyone would make today, thankfully. <laughs> uh, and it's just odd. It's either went it either went totally unnoticed. Or I don't know. I just if I if if I if I was talking to Michael Bay, I would and I could ask him this without it being accusatory. Like why are you, why did you have this racist beat at the beginning of your movie? I, I'm. It's more like. It's at the beginning of your movie. It's t- it's supposed to tell me something. What is this supposed to tell me? Just aside from even whether or not he's cutting in front of a black guy, just that your hero is cutting it like that's the first thing you show also he's curious about his missing left shoe and that never comes back sorry spoiler folks <laughs> if you thought that this movie was you were going to find out what and happened to his left the shoe, shoe. <laughs> he never he never finds the, the shoes so huh. michael bay totally breaks chekhov's rule of the, the <laughs> at the very beginning of this movie the first concern is never hmm. addressed unless hmm. we're supposed to think that the world is the other shoe. Like what? Where you're you're leaving? I don't know. The, it's uh, symbolism. <laughs> I don't know. It's frustrating. It's a, a frustrating tease at symbolism. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, well, okay. Well, we were we were on uh, we were on Steve Buscemi, and uh, <laughs> he gives some he gives some uh, interest. He's an interesting guy. Oh, the, the character, James McCord. Um, now, I didn't see, I don't think I remember seeing Armageddon. Maybe I did or didn't. What's Shawnee Smith's role in in that? The one who plays uh, who plays Steve Buscemi's girlfriend in this film? Because she's an actress I really like. Oh, who is she in that movie? It's been so gosh darn long since I've seen that movie. Uh, I honestly couldn't tell you. I remember the big stars. But I don't remember her. Shawnee Smith is uh, one of those actresses who shows up in films, and I always wish the film would follow her. I feel like I, she's just one of those actors. I, I happen to know her a little bit. She's friends of a friend. It's not like we're friends, but we we I've I've hung out with her a couple times, and she's a, a nice enough person in person. But on film, she just always has this quality of like something's going on, like. It's almost like it's bad casting because she's more interesting than whatever weird little role she has to do. Like this should be played by someone by a less interesting actor. Uh, no offense, Shawnee, but you're too damn interesting. Uh, <laughs> my, my wife was excited to see her and I'm like, I don't, I'm not familiar with who this person is. Oh, people love Shawnee Smith. Okay. I'm, I'm part of the I'm part of the world that is wrong about her. Yeah, well maybe we should do I'm a we'll have to, we'll have to do a Shawnee Smith episode at some point. So uh so yeah, where where else are we going on this film? We, well they're being hunted down by Jaiman Hansu. Yeah. Uh, the uh 
What else has he been in? I mean, he was in Amistad was the first movie I remember seeing him in. Right. One of the one of Spielberg's most harrowing films to me. <laughs> really? Oh man, there's stuff that happens in Amistad that I just like there are, in Schindler's List and in Amistad and in Munich. Each one has like one scene that hits me with the impact of like the most violent stuff in Scorsese's work, but it's usually just like one thing, one image and it just like it will haunt me forever and there's one in yeah. Amistad that I just uh, yeah hmm. it's like one of the one okay. of the worst things I've ever seen on film I mean and I don't mean that in a in a ju- like it's good the film is showing you as a, a tremendous in the midst of maybe what some people might think is kind of light anyway Amistad check it out the world is wrong about it okay he's really good in Gladiator yep do you remember Gladiator doing the um, uh that's a that's a not, not another movie milkshake, you know. Throw some Spartacus in there, and, uh, and he's in Blood Diamond. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, yeah, I never saw I never saw Blood Blood Diamond, but works it works a tremendous amount, and he's he's great in this. He brings he's one of those actors who the way well let's talk a little bit a little bit about the way the film uses him. Uh, because he's definitely he's the bad guy but from the very beginning there's something the film is telling us that he's also the good guy maybe yeah. like the han solo type character in this film yeah where you kind of realize he's just doing his his job that he was hired to do but the whole time then... he's paying attention but he's he's the one he seems to know more than anyone else of what the whole story is. It seems like, mm-hmm. or he's the one who figured it out first. Um, and also, just like the two leads, he's also an incredibly beautiful human being. And just seeing him lit and shot in this extravagant, you know, eye candy, like I think Michael Bay does him good service to of just making him look amazing. Um, every time you see him, in his beautiful face. Yeah. Yeah. That's like I said, the, these these moments of star ogling in the midst. <laughs> like there's a point when they're falling, when uh, Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson are falling off a building. And even in the midst of it, there are some times when you're like, damn, they look good. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, and the, you feel like the camera is literally like, in a weird just shortcut in between all this action there's just a moment of just like wow the way they're falling that's that's graceful i don't know it just loves them and there's some, there is something yeah. that is is pretty i don't know commendable it's uh respectable about that oh this is yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh what else do you want to tell us about this film oh gosh it just i don't know it's just it I feel like we kind of did it. It's like a milkshake. It's cra- It's got this crazy, like it's hard to know what to take seriously of like, are, is, are they trying to make a point about anything in this movie? Is the point basically just like clones are bad or don't trust, you know, like you know, people behind big desks that are making you promises. Like, I don't know, but it's like, it definitely could be that movie, but it doesn't, I feel 
take the stand strong enough to be a message movie and it doesn't quite focus its attention enough to be like as strong as like some of the best of the movies we mentioned from the 70s that are really about paranoia or not trusting the government or not trusting you know like people that in labs doing tests on people like it oh, doesn't quite coma get coma that's the other one it reminds me there of add that to your you list go. people sorry that's... yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i feel like it do- it's like it doesn't i don't feel that michael bay's passionate enough about what any of this movie's trying to say i think he had more fun shooting the beautiful people and blowing things up as he as he does very very well uh, and it's written by the two guys uh, who wrote, I think, the Transformers, like the Alex Kurtzman and Wilberto uh, Orsi. I think that's how you say his name. And so it just definitely feels like they just made this big action movie in a way, didn't really think too much about what it was about. Maybe that's careless or maybe that's fine because they don't need to and just let you as an audience figure out, you know, it's 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 kind of under the umbrella of like, that basic sci-fi premise of just sort of like don't play with nature don't play like don't play god you will do the it gets bad it's a not good thing so it 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 doesn't quite quite lean into it in the way that like if this movie was made by you know vim vendors uh, you know (laughs) someone who actually is angry and or or is really interested in something if this was a michael apted movie for example it would definitely be a little more charged in the areas of the thematic things it's trying to talk about. But because it's the $120 million movie produced by Steven Spielberg, it kind of glosses over a lot of it, which is fine. Well, you know, I, this, I don't or you've think watched this, this movie six times. What I do you, don't what think, do you think this has happened before, <laughs> but, uh, I think that, uh, I think this actually, like, I don't agree with its message entirely. I'm I'm susceptible to aspects of it, but I do feel like this has a lot, like he's putting a lot in here and you, it, there's some aspect of a, a labor of some kind of passion to it. Uh, so I feel like this, it's got a very, I feel like it has a very strong pro-life message. Hmm. In the sense, okay. uh, and like there's this whole part where they say, he says, Jesus, the, a character says, Jesus must love you. And I don't know, my, I don't know, I think, is Michael Bay Jewish? I, I think I saw somewhere on, <laughs> so I don't, like, I don't, I don't know where that's coming from. Maybe that's intentional or not, but like it's, con- there's something conflicted about it. And after watching it many times, there's one scene that really sticks in my head and maybe it encapsulates everything that's great about this movie and everything that is not great about this movie. So there's this scene when James McCord, the father of James McCord Jr., the, the Watergate <laughs> burglar, who is has been sort of teaching Ewan McGregor's character about, like he becomes sort of a mentor friend to him, Basically, he gave him a drink once and he's and Ewan McGregor keeps coming down to visit him and saying, yeah. hey, can I have some more of that stuff? You And they yeah. get drunk and they talk together anyway. So when he leaves their first hangout, he has to go and do his work and he goes into the room where they're about to birth one of the clones. And he's like, oh, could you guys wait till I'm gone before you do this? It'll gross me out. And then. 
the, the people are packaged in like a saline bag, mm-hmm. if you can imagine. It, yeah. I hope if you're at this point in listening to this <clears throat> podcast that you've seen the movie, because why would you be listening to this one if you haven't? Anyway, uh, and just when Buscemi says that, they go to cut it open, and the shot of it, it's like the shots of the, the of the beautiful people in this movie. It's like Michael Bay can't help himself, and it's this beautiful, <laughs> like this glorious shot of some, like oh, and it, you for a second you think, oh, is he making a point that Steve Buscemi's character is grossed out by birth, but it's really a beautiful thing. But then, yeah, then he goes right back to just doing the the really gross out Matrix ripoff. Pulling yeah. all the sputum and stuff out of their yeah, face, yeah, yeah. and yeah, yeah. it is kind, and it is played for grossness, and it's almost like he can't help himself. Like it's almost like there's three separate beats that are all great, <laughs> but they don't really add up to anything. <laughs> but they're all rendered with sort of this certain director's passion. That, yeah, that I don't know. It just, it it's it keeps you interested visually and confused yeah. you know on at, at the at the soul level yeah no it's uh and i think it, it's also that's the enigma of michael bay in a way where you don't really know where he stands on things exactly but he's shooting it as if it's important but there's the con the, the conflicting information yeah it's weird <laughs> it's like are we supposed to think this is beautiful or think it's gross or, or funny. Just think it's cool is or it? funny. <laughs> like the tone. And like definitely tone is something in his movies, in all of his movies, that is always very unnerving and off kilter. Like there's a lot of parts in the first Transformers movies for sure where you're like, Am I supposed to hate this person? Wait, I'm supposed to think this is cool or not cool? Wait, but that person does like and you don't and like, is this a funny part? Oh wait, but this part is really tragic. And it is kind of part of I think that's sort of the danger of when you make a milkshake. Maybe sometimes you get a bite of something. You're like, wait a minute, <laughs> that doesn't feel blended in. It doesn't really work. This, you know, kumquat in the middle of this chocolate vanilla milkshake. <laughs> so I think you gotta be careful. And I don't know. Yeah, it's like, is that him being irresponsible and just waiting to do the action movie? And he's, or he's just so used to like, this is how you shoot human beings, no matter what they're in. You make them beautiful, kid. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know, but it definitely. I mean. But it is a choice, and it's not like an accident. It's not like you go whoopsie daisy and turn a camera on and then fall down and the movie's done. Like you actually you have to like set it up and have a discussion and it's written down. And so there is intention behind anything any filmmaker does, uh, sometimes accidental from what they were the point they're trying to make. But yeah, that is weird. That is a weird scene, <laughs> especially the way it is directed and shot. Uh, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you hear it. It's like people who know how to like. You get the sense that that they're it's just like if if you you know how to make movies, but you don't know how to tell stories, or there's something like there's some disconnect of. Yeah, I don't even want to because it sounds like I'm judging, and I, what I'm trying to do is is offer an odd defense. Like if you be if you are a successful director in the way that he has been for the, 
in the for the time that he has been then you really don't have time to like to have a life that gives you any stories to tell so yeah uh so then you get something like this and i would say it's funny because we talked about it in our when we were guests on the pure cinema podcast where i feel like the kind of the same thing about u-turn and i feel like Oliver Stone obviously has lived more of a life than Michael Bay has. And so there's more stuff in the tank, but it still has the same quality of like, okay. with that, it's like someone who I have more affinity for just having fun with pushing buttons or, you know, just what with cinema, having fun with cinema. And in this case, this is a guy who I'm less interested in, but clearly he loves cinema. Maybe yeah. to, I feel like to a fault. He's a guy who just gets really in love with each setup. And that creates a, a really, well, a unique cinematic experience where in the middle of things where you're supposed to be, I don't know, stressed out for your characters, you're more like, wow, they look good. Just the way the light's <laughs> hitting them when they're sliding through that. Oh, like, oh, that water comes off. Like, goddamn, Ewan McGregor's a fucking star. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I find Michael Bay to be endlessly fascinating and no one has really unboxed it yet. I feel like there's not a really good book about him. And like, I know he's sort of reserved and won't like kind of give big interviews and he doesn't want his brain picked and he wants to just sort of make these movies I think an interesting window into him for sure is his Instagram. Really? I think if anyone, if no one has seen, like that is the most human he's ever come across is on his Instagram. And my, my wife is not a Michael Bay fan. She does not like him at all. She, that she likes very few of his movies. I think she likes pain and gain and that's it. <laughs> but she was, I kept showing her every morning. I'd be like, look at this Instagram post of Michael Bay did. And she was like, I actually now like Michael Bay and my heart is warm to him now because his Instagram is mostly him and his dogs just hanging out in his big mansion. And that's it. It's sort of like he's he's it's just like it feels like a character in a movie where it's like you're this big, powerful, rich guy and you live in this big place. And the people that you love the most aren't people at all, but these two dogs and there's like video of him being like, we're eating enchiladas. And it's just him feeding enchiladas to his dog or him being like, we're having a pool party. And it's like him in the pool with his dogs and there's no other human being <laughs> around. And you're kind of like, oh, this is sort of like, this is kind of feeling like a Preston Sturges character or something. There's something really interesting going on here. Like this weird version of a millionaire that I'm sort of like kind of, you know, having feelings for now because like there's something endearing about this guy who makes these big macho movies full of these like beautiful people and then how do you spend your time with my dogs eating enchiladas <laughs> like, you're like okay like i thought you'd be partying with victoria's secret models but instead you're just hanging out with the dogs that you love more than any human being which you know i agree dogs are better than people so i you know power to you michael bay but i think that's a very interesting that's an interesting window I think for future homework for anyone, I think the first Transformers movie is interesting because he has said that's his most personal movie and that's an interesting choice for your most personal movie. So that's definitely like open to analysis watching that movie. But now, so really what you're saying is you chose this one 
so that we could do another Michael Bay movie. I feel like it's sort of like doing Jack and Jill. It's sort of like, okay, the door is now a little bit open and I don't want this to turn into the Michael Bay or Adam Sandler podcast. I kind of want to do that, but I can I can hold back and just give a little bit. Uh, the director's bit, wall little... did my it did a uh, Michael Bay. You you get through that one pretty quick. It's not he doesn't make yeah, a lot of movies. I don't I feel bad making AJ watch all five Transformers movies and I have a feeling I know how that show will go, which is me being very excited and him not agreeing with me whatsoever. <laughs> so I don't think it's going to be a good choice. Well, uh, I, I didn't mention but... <laughs> it, but there was one other actor who showed up in this who I really like. Uh, the Her name's Kathleen, Kathleen Rose Perkins, and she was in the show Episodes. Did you ever watch that show? About the no, two heard... British writers who come to Hollywood to make a film with uh, what, Matt LeBlanc. Or make a series with Matt LeBlanc. Like, they've basically Americanized a popular UK series, made it into an American series, but totally destroyed it and built it around Matt LeBlanc. And it's these two actors, Tamsin Gregg, who we talked about when we were talking about uh, Tamara Drew in the Stephen Frears Mm -hmm. episode, and Stephen Mangan, who was in The Green Room, not The Green Room, The Green Wing, and he was in, I think, that the Douglas Adams detective. Uh, oh, Dirk Gently. Dirk Gently. Uh, I believe he yeah. played Dirk Gently in a, uh, a version of that. And uh, so that's great. And anyway, uh, Kathleen uh, plays a, uh, sorry, Kathleen Rose Perkins plays one of the assassins in this. And it's always fun when, like, uh, again, like Shawnee Smith, you're like, oh, wh- why didn't we get more about her? She's the most interesting assassin. And well, maybe if this movie was a hit, they could have done a whole movie about the assassins, the whole thing about Steve Buscemi fathering this. Yeah. So, like, who knows? Anyway, uh, yeah. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that I. I'm, as always, when you recommend a film, <laughs> I'm glad you've expanded my my film yeah. awareness and challenged my prejudices. And uh, introduced me to sometimes some things that I, I never would have looked at, like probably like this film. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. We did it. We went to the island and somehow we came out okay. Um, Brian, there is no island. <gasps> Wait, what? Oh, no. <laughs> but yeah, I think consider this a gateway into the world of Michael Bay. I feel like this is his least good movie but it's still interesting. And if you branch from before and after this, it's all something really interesting. So this um, film is kind of like a canal. Mm-hmm. Leading us yeah, into the bay. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word, 
You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. He's Steve Lippman. And she's Candy Claire. And together we figure it out. Join us as we take on life's unanswered or overly answered questions. Our guests include comedians, healers, environmentalists, bake-off contestants, and some nonsense from our beloved intern, Dine. You can send us questions and hear them answered live on the podcast. A new episode every or every other Wednesday on Paper House Network. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Eight notes scale an octave. Master the scale and you master the score. Okay, well, from Michael Bay to Francis Ford Coppola, who is the topic <laughs> of the Director's Wall, the current season of the Director's Wall, the other podcast that you host with AJ Gonzalez. And uh, it, it's your, your tastes are so diverse, from Michael Bay to Francis Ford Coppola to Dennis Jerry Dugan. Lewis to Dennis Dugan <laughs> to... Claire Denis, you know, if, you know it's just it's all over the place. <laughs> if you love movies, you love all the movies. You know, it's just like why, why be a snob? Why be picky? And uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe I could convince AJ to do a Michael Bay for the director's wall, where we go through every movie by a director. What's my, interesting about Michael Bay is he's did a lot of music videos before. He did a Playboy video in like the late '80s. So would we have to watch and review that? sure aj wouldn't complain about that he would definitely like maybe that would definitely be an interesting thing to see is there anything personal from michael bay in a playmate you know home video or a music video what's the closest connection michael bay to francis ford coppola oh hmm that's a good question uh gosh i would say that hmm i mean you could go through like spielberg and you know him and he's pals with spielberg and spielberg's pals with coppola so they share a frame with steven spielberg um but i don't know like they don't really use a lot of the same actors do they i'm trying to think of like what yeah he's never made a movie with any of the people that were in the godfather so, like, I don't know. Like, you think James Caan would have shown up in a Michael Bay movie. It hasn't happened. If uh, Francis Ford <laughs> Coppola made The Island, it would obviously open with a big party. Like, some sort of big thing where we'd meet everyone. It would be the scene where they're getting breakfast, but it would be, that would be the first scene, and the camera would be bounced on meeting, yet yeah, all five different, like, it would just be meeting all these people, and it would be 30 minutes. That would be the first 30 minutes of the movie. Um. <laughs> and then it well, would it would definitely in that case Sean Bean's character would be a stand-in for the director sort of the father <laughs> figure director yeah. overseeing everything yeah 
And it, and this movie is also very similar to a THX 1138 made by George Lucas, who was good friends with Francis Ford Coppola. So, I mean, just you kind of kind of tie it together a little bit. Not really, but sort of. This is going to just uh, consider this sort of an Easter egg for future episodes, folks. But would you say that the friendship between George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola was in any way beard based? <laughs> I think, you know, people with beards are drawn to other people with beards. There's definitely a kind of secret club or not so secret club, I guess. Like, there's definitely like, yeah. But like all those dudes had beards back then. Like Spielberg had a beard. Brian De Palma had a beard. Uh, even at the time when they all were pals in the 70s, Scorsese had a beard. He doesn't anymore. I think he's the only one who's gone full clean cut, right? Elaine May had a beard. <laughs> Elaine May had a beard. No, she did not. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, beards beards hang with, with beards. Uh, beard yeah yeah there was a there was a, <laughs> it was maybe i mean you're talking about a very like a, a small group of people like there were the probably the beardless ones who who hung out on the outskirts of that like i don't i've never seen a picture of john sales with a beard no you don't have a beard uh i don't think william freakin ever had a beard yeah um yeah yeah some people you know go beard some people don't yeah uh well that's there's no real easy transition out of that into discussing radio eight ball and synchronicity but uh you know i i I sometimes i don't know if i used to host a podcast called radio eight ball uh but uh you've been a guest on it brian right yeah yeah it's a good it's a good show uh bring it back i feel bad did i take you away from that oh no 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 like this this is this was the perfect the this is the perfect escape from the show where (laughs) what we did was we we, or what we do is we answer questions by picking songs at random and interpreting them like musical tarot cards and that's like a fun thing to do live it just at a certain point doing it from the from the world of quarantine got a little lonely and (laughs) so uh and and there's just a you know it's a it's it's a very uh, it's a very truth finding format and so mm-hmm. this last year the truth has been just an unpleasant place to live whereas <laughs> this you know talking about movies is a, is a you know it's great <laughs> but uh the the only very odd connect like very strained connection from the island to radio eight ball is that I mentioned that I kind of I met Shawnee Smith a couple times. She's much better friends with the actress Tuesday Night, who I acted with in Nightmare on Elm Street for. And also she played a very small role, barely barely showed up, just sort of a fun cameo in The Prom. But uh, we, we went out together for, for many months. And back in those, you know, back when you're in your late teens, you know, early 20s, for many months, it was like a, a long-term relationship. And, uh, and of course, we've had a long-term relationship because we're part of the Nightmare family. But uh, I remember she's the one who introduced me to Shawnee. And it's an it's one of those odd and confusing things for a young man in that when you meet someone and they know that you're in a relationship, you meet a, a girl or a woman. We, we're all kids then, so I'm just going to say girl. When you meet a girl and... 
uh, she knows you're in a relationship. She's much more comfortable and easygoing around you. And then you, and so I would, that was, and that was kind of what I remember happening. We were having this great conversation and then Tuesday walked in and because we were just so comfortably hanging out, it made her be like, what's going on? (laughs) So I feel like I got like my memory of Shawnee Smith is feeling like I got do got caught doing something illicit or intimate, but all we were doing was hanging out hanging out like normal people who aren't doing anything illicit or or wrong. But but uh, in this in, the, in in a world is wrong moment, uh, that came that was shattered in that moment, and that was the last I know of Shawnee Smith, other than seeing her in films and TV shows and thinking, yeah, she's cool. Anyway, uh, haven't had Shawnee Smith on Radio 8 Ball, but I have had Tuesday Night on Radio 8 Ball several times because she, uh, she makes music. She actually sang uh, the the Nightmare on Elm Street theme song for, for the movie The Dream Master, and she was on an episode of Radio 8 Ball singing uh, the Dramarama song that was in my karate scene in that movie <laughs> with John Easdale, the lead singer of Dramarama. So uh, nice. <laughs> I, it, I had to stretch a long way to get from the island <laughs> to that, but that's recorded. In our, that's there in our episodes. You look up Tuesday night, John Easdale, Radio Eight Ball. You'll find that, and you get to hear a duet like uh, like you've never heard before. Anything, anything. Oh my God, it's amazing. <laughs> nice. So, uh, I guess, you know, this, well, let, what, what, let's talk about what's next, next episode, another episode full of beautiful people, but people with beautiful voices, so many beautiful voices. If Michael Bay could shoot people's voices and make them beautiful, it would be our next movie. <laughs> yes. We are going to be covering high society from 1956 with the music by Cole Porter Starring Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, Louis Armstrong, Grace Kelly, it is uh, it's it's quite something. It's quite a film. Yeah, I'm pumped. Anyway, uh, if you if you like this podcast, you can well you can have our eternal gratitude. Um, it's uh, we 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 love making these podcasts for you. And um, if you have any responses, please write to us at contact at the world is wrong podcast.com. You can find us. We post clips for all the movies that we cover at our Instagram. And that's at the world is wrong podcast on Instagram. You can also find us on YouTube. Uh, all the links for all these things are in the show notes, as well as links for the director's wall and uh, radio eight ball. And, uh, well, you know, if you watch The Island and you related to it, it's probably because on some level, you know that the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong about you. And you might be a fucking clone. <laughs> I like it. Oh, Mac. They got matching bracelets. Oh, we should do that. Susie, do you remember the talk we had about all the talk? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Actually, would you please 
run down to Red's and pick us up a six or a bud. We, we, we've got to talk shop. Okay, baby. Just making friends. I know. Good. Uh... Why do they lie, Mac? Why do they lie to us? Tell me. To keep you from knowing what you are. What we are? What are we? Oh, man, why do I gotta be the guy who tells the kids there's no Santa Claus? Okay, look, you're, uh... Uh... Well, you... You're not like me. Um... I mean, you're not, uh, human. I mean, you're human, but you're just, you're not real. You're not like a real person, like me. You're clones. You're copies of people out here in the world. What? Clones? What? Copies of what are you talking Why? about?